Um, but I think it's quite a challenging chapter and a challenging book, so it would be good uh, to pray for the Spirit's help as we begin. So let's do that. Father, the Lord Jesus warns us that it is possible to diligently search the scriptures and yet to miss the Son. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might read in such a way that we honour the Son and so honour you, the Father who sent him. For your name's sake. Amen. When in a uh, supposedly post-Christian society, the truth is we remain inescapably religious. Uh, the, uh, the cover of last week's uh, New Statement, a New Statesman magazine, had a, has a picture of a, a Bible on its cover. Uh, and the headline, which you won't be able to see from there, is Godless Britain a special issue on secularism, atheism, and belief. I always think it's ironic that even by definition, atheism is parasitic on religion. It defines itself less by what it is and much more by what it isn't. We are inescapably religious. Uh, The New Statesman magazine says that it is committed to the principles of secularism. But in this recent editorial, the editor concludes this, or concedes this, there remains in societies such as ours a deep religious longing. And that, quote, as much as they might like to, secularists can't wish such urges away. When our own MP, Nick Clegg, was asked whether he believed in God, his response was a very emphatic no. But his views seem to become somewhat more nuanced as we approach the general election. In one interview, he said that he had, quote, enormous respect for people with faith. And he added, I'm married to a Catholic and am committed to bringing my children up as Catholics. However, I myself am not an active believer. But the last thing I would do when talking or thinking about religion is approach it with a closed heart or a closed mind. Aside from the fact that it seems strange to me at least uh, that you would want to bring your children up to believe something that you thought was false, uh, Nick Clegg's advocacy of open-mindedness is very much in the spirit of the age. There are very few things that our society values more than a so-called open mind. But as the writer G.K. Chesterton famously commented, an open mind, like an open mouth, is for closing on something solid. But if we are inescapably religious, we are in the UK at least more specifically shaped by the most influential man in history, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the number of people who are actively followers of Christ is relatively small, but the fact remains that the the person and teaching of Jesus Christ has shaped our political system, our, our legal system, architecture, health, arts, social care for hundreds and hundreds of years. Take him away, and the whole of our cultural fabric unravels. 
He remains a figure of fascination for many from all walks of life. So, for example, the writer and broadcaster Melvin Bragg commented in a recent interview that he was interested in the Christian faith. He said this, I don't believe in the resurrection and all that, but I am fascinated by the metaphor and the morality and the mysticism. Or the comedian Peter Kay, writing in his biography, said this, I believe that a man called Jesus did walk the earth at one time, but I don't think he was the superhero that the Bible makes him out to be. And he goes on to echo what I guess is the feelings of many by saying, I like to believe in a God of some kind, in some sort of higher being or force. Personally, I find it very comforting. Plus, it gives me somebody to talk to on long train journeys when there's no phone signal. I got back last night uh, from a week in Hungary teaching on a youth camp for around 40 Hungarian teenagers, most of whom were not Christians. And unbelief is endemic in Hungary as it is in the UK. But again, Hungary is, as a nation, has been profoundly shaped by the person of Jesus Christ from their first avowedly Christian king, Stephen, to the present day. Christianity has left an indelible mark on almost every aspect of Hungarian cultural landscape. Even 40 years of communism failed to eradicate Christ's impact. But many in Hungary, like many in England, think that Jesus was little more than just a great moral teacher. And that even in the Bible, Jesus never really claims to be anything more. I have to say, I've never really understood that kind of urban myth that Jesus never claims to be divine in the Bible. It always strikes me as odd. I'm never quite sure what Bible people are reading when they make that claim. For even a cursory reading of the Gospel accounts reveals the claims that Jesus makes of himself are extraordinary. The kind of idea that a moral teacher would claim of himself the kind of thing that Jesus does seems odd, and that's nowhere more striking than in John chapter 5. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you will have seen that John 5 begins with the Sabbath controversy. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, and because of that, verse 16, John says the Jews persecuted him. Now, for good reasons that we don't have time to explore, the Sabbath was a very big deal in the Old Testament. It certainly wasn't some sort of random rule that gave the religious a stick to beat people with. It was rather a sign that God provided to help people to understand what life was all about. And if Jesus wasn't already in deep enough water with the religious, he pushes things even further when he provides a theological justification for what he's doing. You see, he works on the Sabbath. Why, verse 17? Because God works on the Sabbath. The conclusion was inescapable. Jesus was making himself equal with God, verse 18. And for his listeners, such a claim was so outrageous, they tried all the harder to kill him. So, what would a normal, mentally balanced, moral teacher do before an outraged religious religious audience that are intent on killing him? Certainly not what Jesus does next. Because as you read on, Jesus unpacks the full meaning and significance of his extraordinary claims. 
There is no way that you can read Jesus' words in John 5 and conclude that he was just a great moral teacher. Jesus is the divine son of his heavenly father who claims the prerogatives of God himself. Jesus can raise the dead and give life and he will, in the end, be the judge of the world. Now, it's hardly surprising that such extraordinary claims leave Jesus' listeners reeling. And it's clear from Jesus' words in verse 31 that he's addressing an implicit challenge in their reaction. You can raise the dead and you will judge the world? Yeah. Says who? Who's going to authenticate this outrageous claim? Who are you going to call to the witness box to testify on your behalf? See, I think when you you face the full significance of Jesus' claims, that he can give life and that he will judge the world, do, do you not find his words are, if not unsettling, deeply disturbing? If the Jesus of history really is the Son of God who says that you are dead and only he can give you life and that without that life you will face him as your judge, then you begin to see why trusting in Jesus is so important. And yet, you can understand Jesus' claim and remain unpersuaded that it's true. There are those who are not Christians who still have many questions. And those of us who profess faith in Christ still have many doubts. Is it really true that this extraordinary man of history is the God without whom I am condemned and with whom I can truly live? See, for us too, we hear Jesus' words and say, yeah, Says who? It's a pretty extraordinary claim to be God in human history, offering life and warning of judgment. It's why we actually prefer Jesus as a good moral teacher, particularly if we can pick and choose the bits of his good moral teaching that we actually think are good and we can reject the bits that we don't. So the question remains, Who's authority, who is authoritative enough to testify that what Jesus says is true? Who are you going to call to the witness box? Whose testimony is going to carry enough weight? Well, Jesus says, verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favor. And it's not mere human testimony, but the testimony of the Father himself. And of course, if Jesus really is God, then how could he possibly appeal to any human testimony? It would be like asking a local magistrate to validate the legal ruling of the Lord Chancellor. There's no one higher than you can appeal to if you claim to be God, is there? And so Jesus outlines the Father's testimony. See, in the first place, there is the Father's testimony through John the Baptist, verse 33. The Old Testament scriptures made it clear that the Lord would send someone before Jesus to prepare the way. 
And as Jesus makes clear, John's testimony wasn't for his benefit. It's for ours. Christianity didn't begin 2,000 years ago in a stable. It began before the creation of the world and throughout history God made promises that were fulfilled in Christ and finally heralded in history by a promised preacher, John the Baptist. And for a time at least, John was a popular preacher, verse 35. He was a lamp that burned and gave light. A light which people chose to enjoy for a time. But the problem with John was he kept telling people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And that makes you unpopular. Now take, for example, the present difficulties for governments right across Europe. We, we don't want to hear too much doom and gloom from our elected representatives. We'd rather, tell us, we'd rather they tell us what we want to hear and live in denial than face up to the truth and face reality. And there were similar challenges for John the Baptist. And because he kept pointing people to Jesus who offers life and warns of judgment, he became increasingly unpopular. Now, the idea that the Bible is a random collection of unconnected stories is a remarkably pervasive belief. The reality is a careful reading of the Bible reveals an astonishing coherence. The story of the God who makes promises and keeps them. A few years ago, I I ran a Bible overview course here at at Fullwood, and for one person on the course at least, seeing how the Bible fitted together, seeing how the whole of Israel's history pointing to Jesus, was one of the most significant things that persuaded her that that what Jesus claimed was true. So Jesus says, look, there is the Father's testimony in John the Baptist, the herald who announced the fulfillment of God's promises throughout history. But secondly, there is the Father's testimony in Jesus' work, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Jesus says that what he actually does in his ministry is the Father's testimony to the truth of his identity and claims. His his teaching, his miracles, or the signs as John refers to them. Not least the greatest sign of the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are the Father's testimony to the truth of Christ. Now, I know that there are scientific reductionists like Richard Dawkins around who have a big problem with miracles. But you know their objections are driven by their own philosophical presuppositions and not by the evidence. I'll give you an example. The Harvard geneticist Richard Lewontin talks about his own prior commitment to a material explanation of life. He says he's committed to that, quote, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Why? Why is he so committed to a material explanation of life that will exclude the miraculous? Because as he puts it very revealingly, we cannot allow 
a divine foot through the door. We cannot allow a divine foot through the door. See, before some people even consider the Father's testimony and the work of the Son, they've decided that it can't be true. It's their own presuppositions, not the evidence that drives their conclusions. For granted the possibility of God, there is nothing intrinsically implausible about Jesus' miracles or even his resurrection. So throughout history, both the simple and the intelligent have heard the words and works of this remarkable man and have come to know with confidence that, as Jesus puts it in verse 24, they've come to know that when they trust Jesus, they have eternal life. And they're not condemned. So, Jesus says there is the Father's testimony in John the Baptist, the Father's testimony in Jesus' work, and thirdly, there is the Father's testimony throughout history. Which is what I take Jesus means in verse 37 when he says that the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. There are a number of possibilities in understanding that verse, but I think it's probably best to understand Jesus' words as referring to the Father's testimony in the broadest sense. His testimony throughout the Old Testament, his testimony at Jesus' baptism, and his testimony in the lives of those who've come to recognize who Jesus is and to trust him. In other words, Jesus is speaking of the Father's remarkable testimony throughout history. Now, of course, if you, if you read your Bible and you know church history and you know Christians and you know yourself, if you are a believer, the testimony of those who follow Jesus is far from perfect. Christians are not perfect, they're forgiven. And where their lives do commend the gospel of Jesus, it's not because they're better people, it's because God is in the business of changing people and pointing others to Jesus too. One of the guys I was out in Hungary with um, was telling me about the remarkable things that happened in his family. His parents divorced when he was two. His father was an alcoholic, his father was living on the streets, And his father heard the gospel of Christ and was converted. And he stopped drinking straight away. Astonishing. Astonishing the way in which the gospel can change people's lives. Not perfect, but forgiven. Father's testimony throughout history, through the Old Testament, the baptism of Jesus, and in the transformed lives of believers. So, Jesus, equal with God, offering life, warning of judgment. Says who? Well, God alone is a fit witness to himself. So Jesus speaks of the Father's testimony through John, through his own work and throughout history. At which point we might expect Jesus to turn to those who doubt and challenge his authority and say, so, what do you think? You've heard the evidence. Not just human testimony, but the Father's. So, what do you think? But what Jesus actually says at the end of verse 37 is pretty shocking, isn't it? Jesus doesn't look for his listener's verdict on him. He delivers his own verdict on them. 
See, there's the Father's testimony, but there is also the Son's judgment. And Jesus' verdict on his listeners is the most damning indictment on those who claim to be both moral and religious. See, these folk claim to be moral because they were concerned about rule-breaking. Remember, this whole incident kicks off with the Sabbath controversy and their challenge that in healing, Jesus was working on the Sabbath. And they claim to be religious, well, because they claim to know what God is like and they are outraged that Jesus claims to be equal with God. But Jesus says, if you don't honour the Son, you don't honour the Father. And the reality is, if you don't trust Jesus, you can't know God at all. As Jesus delivers his verdict on his listeners, he, he, he really couldn't be much blunter, could he? Verse 37, the end of verse 37. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he has sent. The truth is, everything hinges on Jesus. He alone gives life, and he will one day be our judge. And if you don't honour the Son, you cannot honour the Father. If you don't come to Jesus for life and go on coming to Jesus for life, Jesus says you hear nothing, you see nothing, you have nothing. All of which means what for you and me? Well, we may be inescapably religious. Maybe we see ourselves as spiritual in some sense. Maybe we have our own view of God. Maybe we like to pick and choose what we regard as the best bits of all the world's religions, the common thread that unites them all. Or maybe our kind of religious experiences are found more at a concert hall or a football match, somewhere where we experience some sense of the other that lifts our spirit in the midst of life. Jesus says, if you don't trust him, if you don't trust him, you hear nothing, see nothing, have nothing. And you know, there's a twist in the tale here for those of us who profess faith in God, those who attend church regularly, those who study the Bible seriously. You know, after all, whatever our many failings as a church family, at least we're serious about the Bible at Fullwood. See, even for people like that, Jesus' words are pretty sobering, aren't they? Jesus says you can be very religious and still hear nothing and see nothing and have nothing. And even serious Bible study is dangerous when it becomes an end in itself, verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John says at the close of his gospel that he, he's written what he's written in order that we might believe, that we might trust that Jesus really is the Christ. And that through believing, through trusting, we might have life in his name. And when John speaks of belief or, or trust in Jesus, it isn't something that you just do once. 
It's something that you need to go on doing in the midst of life's joys and sorrows and uncertainties. Sometimes I think those of us who profess faith in God put serious trust in Jesus on hold. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the idea that I know lurks in my own heart. The idea that I can afford to put serious trust in Jesus on hold until life's easier. Because at the moment, life is... And you can fill in the blanks the same as me. You know, at the moment, life is too busy and it's too difficult and it's too sad. Why do we always imagine that it will be easier to trust Jesus and his words when I've passed my exams or I've got a boyfriend or girlfriend or I get a job or promoted or I get married or I have children, I navigate babies, I tame the toddlers, I understand the teenagers, I get through redundancy, overcome illness, settle into retirement. Why do we imagine that then it will be easy to trust Jesus? Jesus says, verse 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And in John, as throughout the whole Bible, belief is is so much more than just ticking a box on a product satisfaction questionnaire. That's not what belief is. Belief is trust in Jesus. It's dependence on Jesus. It's your whole life being shaped by Jesus. And without that kind of trust in Jesus, he says, we hear nothing and we see nothing and we have nothing. And even attending a Bible teaching church isn't in itself going to compensate for an absence of active, personal dependence on Christ. See, I think that's pretty devastating. You can diligently search the scriptures and you can still miss the whole point, Jesus. The scriptures should lead us to Jesus and Jesus says we need to come to him and keep coming to him for life. So, Jesus, equal with God, offering life, warning of judgment, says who? Well, God alone is a fit witness to himself. So Jesus speaks of the Father's testimony in its many ways. And does Jesus ask us for our verdict? No. He delivers his. There's a very famous passage in one of C.S. Lewis's essay that captures the challenge of John 5 well. It's from his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. And Lewis writes this. In the end, the face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it's related to how he thinks of us. It is written. 
that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted. As an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Well, let's pray together. going to take a, a moment of quiet and then Graham and Jenny are going to lead us in our prayers. Just in the silence now, just reflect on the week ahead. In the light of what Jason has just said, consider something you will be doing this week. Father, We don't want to miss the sun. We long to recognize you in our day to day. Thank you for the gift of life now and your amazing promise for the future. We don't want to miss out on it. Lord, we do know something of the week ahead and what we expect to be doing. We commit these events into your hands and ask that we will be able to see things like you do, Jesus. Help us to listen carefully so that we can understand rightly what you are doing and join in with your ongoing work. Please show us what you are doing in the world around us, in the people around us, and in our own lives. There is also a lot unknown about the week ahead, some surprises that may be welcome and some others that may be unwelcome. Help us to trust you fully in the thick of life, committing everything into your hands moment by moment and casting away our worries. Help us to grasp each moment and make the most of it. Thank you that we know we are precious to you, each one, because of the cross. 
And please, Jesus, help us to hold you as our greatest treasure, even as you treasure us. Father, we commit our great city, Sheffield, into your hands. We thank you that you've placed us here and pray for all of us who live in the city that we may grasp together the depth of your love in our creation, preservation and all the blessings of life, but most especially in your love shown to us in Jesus and in a growing knowledge of your kingdom. Further afield, we want to pray and remember the families in Germany bereaved after the death of 19 young people at the concert in Duisburg last night. Have mercy on us all. Help Christians there to look to you and be a beacon of hope at a time of great sadness for those families. And we pray for the tense situation in Korea with the naval show of force going on there. We pray for great wisdom for the leaders in South Korea and in the US to understand what is the right thing to do that your people, and we pray that your people at all levels, in the media, the armed forces, and in politics, will be salt and light in the uncertainty of that situation. We especially remember Christians in North Korea who have suffered a lot of persecution under the regime there. Tonight we want to pray especially for our mission partners, Robin and Lorna, and their family. Thank you, Lord, for their great gift of languages and for their work in Bible translation and kingdom building. Please be with them as they're visiting their supporting churches in the south of England. We pray that they'll see each situation they're in, each conversation they have, from Jesus' point of view. We pray that you'll look after the new Christians while they're away and that somehow they'll work out what to do about the huge increase in rent of their meeting place. Thank you for their great kids, and we pray that you'll be preparing Rebecca and Daniel for beginning boarding school, and Lord, please help them find someone to help Lorna teach Jimmy and Anna. Lord, children are a very precious gift from you. We pray that you will give wisdom to all of us who are parents or who have responsibility for young people. Help us to love and encourage them in all their ups and downs. Now thinking of the wider community you've placed us in, we bring to you those we know are going through tough times, facing issues of unemployment and work difficulties, financial pressures, breakdown of relationships, disappointment and loss, problems with self-image, self-esteem, and addiction, those suffering from the pain of physical and mental illness and bereavement. I'd like to remember especially the family and friends of our church member, Elizabeth Norman, 
who has just died. Thank you so much, Lord, for this lovely lady, for her faith, her courage, her love of life and art, and her many acts of service. Thank you for the hope we have because of Jesus. And our prayer is that this will comfort and sustain her husband and family at this time of great loss. Finally, we commit to you all the different camps and conventions, house parties, missions, retreats and holidays going on at this time. We pray that each person going to them will be encouraged and built up in their faith as they are refreshed in a different place and with more time than usual to spend with you. We also pray for those who for different reasons aren't getting away, especially the older people we know. We pray that they will be conscious of you being with them and that they and their carers will experience your peace and presence at what can be a particularly difficult time of life. Thank you that at every stage, in every place, we can know for sure that you are with us and that you love us and that we can trust you for the future. We pray these and all our prayers in and through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, Lord and King. Amen.